0: Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marian Maniker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Nick Olney is a director at Kasman Gallery. He reflects in this podcast on the life and career of Kasman's founder, Paul Kasman, who died recently at the age of 60, as Olney awaits the reopening of Kasman's New Spaces and the continuation of The Founder's Vision. He describes for us two shows that were recently closed due to coronavirus restrictions in New York. One show about California surrealism, and the other a show of the painter William Copley, whose estate the gallery represents. Nick Olney, thank you for taking the time to speak to
1: me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So Nick, you were a um director at Paul Kasman's gallery and Paul recently uh succumbed to a a couple of year uh, bout of cancer. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about his career and the gallery and uh, the program as it goes forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um let's see. Paul was um Paul was really a, a singular uh figure in the art world, really one of a kind and an idiosyncratic vision, um which but paired with this wonderful sense of enterprise and uh and of uh constant energy and agility also. So he's a pleasure to work with. I've been working with Paul since 2007 um, and he was amazing through uh through the course of this uh illness. I mean, incredibly stoic, undeterred. Um, Undiminished, and uh, we're just so so sad to to lose him. Um, this entire community he's created of uh, of artists, of uh, estates, of a really fantastic staff, great partners um, of many ilks. I mean, he was really a, a wonderful generalist and loved being involved with and in conversation with lots of different type of types of people um, and surrounding himself with that type of energy and um, it's been wonderful seeing the outpouring of tributes and well wishes that we've received from everyone. Paul started the gallery in 1989, originally in Sohos. So he was there for many years and then moved to Chelsea with the first group of, of galleries moving to Chelsea. So around 99 and 2000. So we opened space on 10th Avenue in 2000. And then in 2018, just opened our new flagship exhibition space on 27th Street next to the High Line which is the one that has the rooftop sculpture garden designed by Marcus Dohanchi from Studio MDA in our first purpose built space. And then we've got showrooms and new offices and everything in the Zaha Hadid building ready to open, right? They finished construction right basically as we were getting the shelter in place instructions and things too. So we have this beautiful gleaming new home to move into as soon as we're able. So that'll be a great place to carry on Paul's legacy. And that was really his vision and dream. And even in recent weeks when he was quite ill, uh, he really wanted to, he was working to the last minute, planning shows, thinking about the future always, and set up Jasper Morrison furniture in his office space there and sat, I got a couple of days of work in even just weeks ago. So he was really committed to that. And you guys are
0: unique in that he created this complex of show spaces and offices all within, you know, hundreds of yards of each other, right? They're all on 27th Street or on the
1: corner. Exactly. And I think Paul's vision for that was to, for one, it makes the logistics so much easier to all be close close to one another. So if a client walks into one exhibition, it's not like we're one person's uptown and one person's downtown, we can pop in and have those. But what he liked was the variety of spaces. And he was always really interested in aesthetics and how you show work to its best and was into to really get an optimal viewing environment in place for a particular body of work. So this gave our artists the opportunity to not just have to make artwork to fill a particular space, They could make the body of work that they were passionate about and really wanted to to create. And then we could then tailor by choosing a different type of space where to be. So it could be very large with concrete floors and full flexibility, or it could be a more intimate space with beautiful natural light and oak wood floors. Or we've also had a a real passion for and dedication to art in the public sphere and uh, public scale sculptures. So then having our own rooftop sculpture garden that we can install works on that's visible from the high line really brings the program into the fabric of the of the city. And so that's another possibility. So basically to create this menu of options for for artists and for ourselves as we're curating and putting together exhibitions. He he
0: also seemed to have a great deal of flexibility when it came to artists themselves. I, I was always struck in the last few years about his is there a role in the rise of the um, uh not their popularity, their market, but just their visibility? Uh, and and I, I know he played a a role in it, but he also seemed to catch it at just the right time. Could you tell us a little bit more about his involvement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the leilangs are fascinating, too, in the way that they work with very closely in with how the 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 stable of artists and estates have, have evolved, and also that ties into some of the exhibitions we have on view right now as well that are currently temporarily closed to the public, but are we're waiting until, you know, obviously after we can all get back together and congregate to really be able to enjoy these shows. Paul was really fascinated by artwork that is and artists whose visions don't fit easily into into a particular box or into a subset. He really thought that things at the intersections and on the margins are particularly fascinating. Paul was not afraid of beauty, and he also was fascinated by quality and the individuality of a vision. He always talked about artists who do what they are the best at what they do, and ones who push their visions all as far as they can. Then the lawns are, are fascinating. They came out of the surrealist tradition and have showed for many years with Alexander Yolas Gallery, um, who Bill Copley showed with as well. Um, and we did a, a a group exhibition about the history of Yolas, who is a fascinating figure. But also one of their early studios was there on the Impasse Francais in Paris, where. Copley was for a short time, but Brancusi was famously there. Max Ernst was there. Tangley and Nikki de saint fall and, and many others, Jimmy Metcalf. And so this was a real area that was a, a fountain of creativity at that time in Paris. Working with the Lalonde became part of our um, program that, that's flexible both between what's traditionally viewed as the, um, the fine arts and functional work in design too. And always interested in how those, where those boundaries are laid, how they're blurred. For Paul, there wasn't about this being one lane and another lane. It's about a field of inquiry and a field of creativity. And uh, the Lalans just had such an incredible vision, incredible sense of craft. And when Paul first started working with them, um, had an incredibly sophisticated, very specific audience too. And so our work with them was really instrumental in creating a truly international audience and market as well. And uh, it's been a, a really wonderful thing to be a part of for so many years. And Paul had this wonderful story he liked to tell about Claude Lalonde when she was in the Impasse Rancin, and she was a wonderful young artist and quite beautiful and charming and Brancusi would like to go over and spend time with her and and have a drink and and smoke cigarettes and one time Claude asked him if he could please use an ashtray if he if he did instead of just ashing on the floor and next time he came back he brought over a beautiful bronze half sphere shape that um he left there so it was a you know basically a Brancusi ashtray and then later on Tangley was working on something and came in and like oh I need this and welded in into, into a piece of his so somewhere in the world there's a there's a Tangley with a welded Brancusi piece he made for clothes, So that type of interaction and telling those types of stories, both, you know, when speaking, but also in terms of the exhibitions we were we're showing his interest in that type of art art history in a lot of ways.
0: Well, when you said earlier about you know artists who are the best at what they do, I sort of thought in in conjunction with the the Lalans, sort of the only ones who do what they do, and, yeah. and there's a certain kind of singularity. But that also immediately made me think of um, uh, Barry Flanagan because he he too is the kind of artist that that people. For years, would scratch their head at uh, when he chose to focus on the the hairs, uh, and over time, the same thing sort of has happened, uh, where they there's a built up this acceptance, and I think kind of passion for that w- work, um, without people fully recognizing that it was happening. It seems to be the same yeah. process that happened with uh, the the Lalan.
1: Yeah, when with Flanagan, he um, when we've got an exhibition right now on the rooftop sculpture garden of three important bronzes of Barry Flanagan's, and and we're really excited to have those. They they just recently went up, and the High Line's closed for the moment, but um, we're excited for so many people to get to see these works once it reopens. It's one of the amazing things about the High Line is it gets so many millions of visitors every every year. But Flanagan is someone, and we our last exhibition was really about. Tying together the two, the two flanagans, both the the early post minimal, very material and conceptual generated work, and as well as the bronzes, and it was curated by Dr. Joe Melvin, who's a fantastic expert on Flanagan and a curator of and scholar on on many things. The sort of thesis of this of that show was that. The the vision is all there, and it's all the same artists and all the same concerns. Barry really got interested in the fully expressive capabilities of bronze, uh, really a la Rodin. One of the sculptures in, on the, in the rooftop sculpture garden right now is uh, the large monument, which is Flanagan's interpretation of Rodin's Gates of Hell. And it's quite incredible. It's got a, a thinker on the bottom and this wonderful massive shape. That I believe the model was made out of piles of plaster and a lot of materials, and then three dancing hairs on the top. Whereas the Rodin has these tormented figures at the gates. These are these whimsical dancing Nijinsky-style hairs. Really, the the hairs are a um, are a stand-in for the human condition, and they really are quite existential in nature and really comes out of this love of the absurd. There's a wonderful, I think it's George Ewald book called The Leaping Hare, which is a really fantastic book that Barry had had read that's all about the, the folklore and folk wisdom about the hare on the British Isles. But Barry, was a, he was a card-carrying pataphysist and he was fascinated by Alfred Jerry and about the absurd and was in a lot of important early conceptual shows in New York and it's nice timing with that with the Alfred Jerry show that's at the Morgan and Jerry was also uh something that binds all three of our shows right now together because he was incredibly influential on Max Ernst and on Duchamp um who were very close friends and huge influences on William Copley and then also tied together with the California surrealist show the uh the Valley of Gold certainly the the beginnings of Surrealism. Man Ray also was um um quite tied to this philosophy as well. And the the European surrealists that were in California led to new directions in, in art in California throughout the sixties and seventies and later on as well. So and Copley is also a part of that legacy as well. So all three shows um really have uh you know just interesting um webs of influence and and dialogue with one another. And that was something Paul was always interested in doing, trying to combine something old with something new, something unexpected, um, but to do it with um, academic and intellectual rigor, but also to really kind of have style and uh, and zing to it too. Paul often embodied each of these things at once, and that's what he was um, most attracted to. Something you were, an artwork you were drawn to by its strength and its power of expression and its craft, but then as you get to understand where it comes from, you understand that it's freighted with a great deal of um, deep intellectual inquiry. And he loved that versus the the other way around, where something you had to read a lot on just to kind of have a way in. He always liked to sort of surprise people as they start to unpack something that they're first initially very... Um, attracted to by its visual uh makeup. So uh, you mentioned the
0: um Copley show and uh, the uh, California surrealism uh, mm-hmm. show uh, and and I thought it, it would be useful since uh, uh, people can't see them right now now to hear a little bit more uh, about them and uh, with luck we'll be able to show people uh, uh, some images uh, uh, they, they both got closed because of the um, uh, lockdown in, in New York and around uh, the yeah. United States uh, uh, they were open I think for uh, a a week or two before that happened
1: the valley of gold show for about two weeks before and the copley really just for a very short time before um and um and really the the opening and wonderful event we had was sort of the last public event that that we had and really kind of um ended up being quite close to the lockdown but it was uh it was an opening full of really wonderful um spear and great friends of of bill's and of paul's and it was a it was a wonderful moment of celebration, and we're really looking forward to having people in the interim get to see these shows and explore them, um, online, but then, um, certainly, um, as galleries, we're all, you know, we're putting forth, um, uh, exhibitions in spaces that are designed to best show and house art and, and, uh, our work can be quite ephemeral, but it, it also is very tangible. And um, we're looking forward to everyone being able to have a physical presence uh, and uh, interaction with these with these shows for which they're intended.
0: Until they can, uh, walk me through the Copley show uh, sure. a little bit the sort of the, the 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 context of why uh, now and what's in the show.
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess I have to start uh, I'll start talk about it a little bit chronologically, but start on on a couple of different periods of Copley's life and where this show fits in. One of the first sort of chapters we talk about when you talk about Copley is a direct, um, in a direct relationship to the Valley of Gold show. But basically after Bill had been in World War II, he had, um, he'd been adopted. Um, likely his, um, parents had, died of the of the spanish flu um which is a sort of an interesting full circle to what yeah, we're yeah, echo you know.
0: of yeah of the same events yeah
1: yeah and he was adopted into a conservative um uh newspaper family in in san diego and then had gone to andover and yale then fought in world war ii and saw saw um saw fighting in world war ii and i think this is part of where his deep sense of the absurd that leads to his humor which I think also really tied him with people like Max Ernst as well. Um, from that experience, we moved back to California. He, along with the the brother of his first wife, decided to become Surrealists. And uh, they went and introduced themself, themselves to Man Ray, who had a little storefront and had uh, escaped Europe during the war. And Man Ray introduced them to Max Ernst. Together, they then they got a, um, introduced to Duchamp through through Alexander Yolas and then Copley had in 1948 and 49 a short-lived gallery that had a fantastic Surrealist program. Brought things out to to California as well. Um, had a wonderful show of Cornell boxes, Tangi, um, Max Ernst full first retrospective. Was able to borrow and get incredible material. Um, but um, he was really an artist at heart and not uh, not a businessman. And uh, the gallery wasn't successful, but it also his guarantees on buying a certain amount of work was uh was the seed of his surrealist collection that ended up becoming very, very important. Um and then in 19 uh it's either 1950 or 1951, he moves with Man and Juliet Ray to to Paris, sets himself up there. There he marries No Copley, um, who was a really important figure in his life as well. But going back to Europe and there he's really in the milieu for which he always Love being surrounded by these, um, major first-generation surrealists, um, Magritte, uh, included as well, and, and they had all encouraged him to paint. He first started making artwork and showed in LA, um, as a way to deepen his, his writing and add more content and style to his writing. He was a great, he's a great writer, and there's a wonderful book of his selected, selected writings. um, that is edited by Anthony Atlas and uh, published by Koenig, which is out right now. So uh, w- when we have a big get together at the when we're back from all this, there'll be a book launch as well. Um, but in Paris, uh, they all oh, this really really encouraged him to devote himself to his work um, and his painting. And there he really developed his uh, his mature style. and uh, it's both he's self-taught, so it has this almost outsidery autodidact, feel to it and a certain naivete, But one of the, the things about Bill is he couples this sense of the naive with uh, extreme sophistication, both um uh in his in his person, but also in his work. I mean, he's really he might have very, you know, odd, foreshortened compositions, strange uses of um, or you know, not typical uses of color. Um, he was in the Marsha Tucker bad painting show as well. So, but these but it's really that belies a real sophistication and knowledge of how of how to construct a picture. He didn't know the rules, he learned the rules and then he broke them. That's part of what's generated this and interest in, in Copley's work over the last 10 years or so has been the the acceptance and the excitement uh generating a lot of younger generations of painters who we'll really see the his work as um really, you know, germane to painting now, particularly different directions and figurative painting, so. Um, but
0: but you wouldn't call his work surrealist, would you?
1: No, it's not. Um, and one of the, the the quotes we sort of use at the beginning of the show is a great Walter Hopps quote, where it talks about him being this important link between the European surrealist and the American pop artist, but he's kind of neither. So he's one of those sort of you know, square pegs that don't quite fit into either. But he's this wonderful connector, um, both both in terms of milieu and relationships, but also in his in his work. So he's sometimes seen as somewhat proto-pop um, with these cartoon explain, lines.
0: Explain that a little more. What 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 makes that pop connection?
1: Um, Let's see. I think you've got a lot of very bold and bold and graphic uh, colors, flattened surfaces. Some cases, I mean, some cases with his nudes and things like that, they're not banal images at all. But um, in the noun series, of which there's a wonderful group in our show, he was pulling from Sears Robux catalogs and doing very, taking very simple objects and then um, kind of everyday objects and infusing them with this kind of, bodiness and surreality, but also pop patterning and simplification. And um, really when he moves from oil to acrylic in about 1965, which is co- a period covered by this exhibition, he works on this radical simplification of, of figures, of faces. The bro- He would use sort of broken lines in the way that someone like Lichtenstein might use dots and rasters and things like that as well. And also he was good friends with a lot of these people too. So he shows up a lot in Andy Warhol's diaries. They were they were, um, they were, were close and really enjoyed each other. There's this also nice tie with the Valley of Gold show, which is curated by Harmony Murphy and also Sonny Ruscha, um Grenade. And Bill had introduced um, Ruscha to, from what I understand, to, to Alexander Yolas, and Yolas gave Ruscha his first show. Um, in New York. And if you take, and there's a wonderful image of Yolas as well as Magritte and, um, and having lunch together in Venice. And if you look at at Ruchet through this lens of a California um, Magritte connection, um, it's a really interesting sort of way in there. And some of the earliest paintings in this exhibition use text overlaid um, over a background in this case of nude and semi nude uh, women, but it, uh, there's a really nice, um, thread that binds there as well. So this show is about Copley's New York years. So when he returns to New York from Paris, and so, um, it really begins in 1962 and goes, um, through towards the end of the 1980s, He eventually moved to, um, Connecticut, kind of right around the corner from H.C. Westerman, who was another good friend who also doesn't really, fit into neat categories very well before moving down to uh, Florida and Key West full time, where Copley passed away in 1996.
0: So it's kind of a broadly uh, representative show with examples from every major series sort of organized that way to give people almost a retrospective like uh, view of his work.
1: Yeah, and many works that have been in retro, retrospectives and, and museum shows as well, from one from, he did a whole death of the tomb de on installation in the new museum in the 1980s, and there's a great painting related uh, that was in that series that he encouraged people to take chalk and graffiti over the entire installation. So you still see some some chalk marks and names on this large scale painting. A lot of works were included in the original Pompidou and Stedlich and um, Kunsthalle Bern exhibitions um, in around 1980, 1981, in the Manila and Prada retrospective as well. So it's really a um, very fully curated show that's a survey of this particular period of time. And Paul really, you know, in, encouraged and loved taking, uh, making, you know, museum quality shows with that depth of of research and scholarship in them.
0: Is there a larger connection to kind of a growing interest in surrealism? I mean, I don't want to suggest that surrealism is being rediscovered because it obviously has always been. Everything's a constantly
1: rotating series of discoveries, right?
0: But there does seem to be something. I mean, McGreet has become a big driver of the top end of the art market. And I can't tell whether some of it is just the 20s are now so remote, o- almost as remote uh, from the present as the um, Impressionists were from the 80s when there was the enormous boom uh, in in the market for their work. And so I don't know whether it's just that sort of, you know, you go 100 years back and suddenly people have a, a greater estimation of it, or maybe the work is more relevant to what, uh, you know, artists are doing today. But it does feel like there's a, uh, a resurgent interest in surrealism.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard to it's hard to put my finger on um, where that urge and that reappraisal comes from. It could be a bit of that distancing, but it's definitely something that Paul was. I am trying to remember the year of when we did our first Max Ernst sculpture show as well. But Paul's always um, he was so kind of ahead of the game and really nimble, and uh, often looking at what looking for what might have been out of fashion for a bit and needs to be in fashion now so he was never that interested in chasing the newest in the newest fashions the the the
0: California surrealism show the images i i've seen of it it's actually remarkable yep. how fresh all of the work looks. It's yeah. o- it's only in connecting them or seeing them arrayed that way, you know, uh, uh, uh right next to each uh, other that you can sort of see the thesis of the show, but the individual works, none of them looks like something, you know, either dated or overly familiar and there's a, a Man Ray work in there I think from the 20s. I mean there's yeah. it's it's all it's all historical work, but but none of it uh, feels particularly um academic if that's the right word for it.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there's. Um, I think that by um, re- recontextualization uh, really does sort of switch up the the lens by which we look at things, and um, in relationship to one another, and and in these sort of tracing lineages of influence that might not be um, might not be a straight line, but really might be a, through a friendship or a, a connection. Um, you start to look at things and in different, in different ways. I mean, one of the paintings in that show that's really incredible is this 1959 uh, Robert Irwin painting that was in his first Ferris show, hasn't been shown since. And um, that, um, you know, both kind of, he was, I guess, um, talking about, you know, trying to represent states of consciousness and, and perception. And those are, those are, those are surrealist, ideas and, and concerns, but also um, that painting has a relationship to abex as well. And that's where, I guess, thinking of Paul's vision also, there's also, you know, trying to tie from surrealism to abex um, to other directions that things started moving by the end of the 1950s and into the 60s where new um, new modes of making art were really emerging. Um, to see that a bit. in what might be considered the pop art of Robert Indiana, but is that has a lot of deep psychological and personal narrative and and personal mythology all freighted in um, Robert Motherwell, someone who learned automatic drawing, you know, in in conversation with Mata, and then became uh, uh, an abstract expressionist, and then also closely tied to the color field movement as well. So um, I was always looking for. These things that go through each, looking at um, at the the relationship of Max Ernst and, and Brancusi, to then tie to contemporary sculptors like Saint Clair Simin and Alma Allen, and these type of concerns. Um, that's those are the types of things that that Paul um, particularly loved, and also loved pure um, visionary outliers uh, like Walton Ford, really one of the original um, gallery artists, and and. In Protean minds and um someone who's the only person doing what he's doing. Um people like um Jamie Nairs, who take some of that deep welling of uh of how one constructs a, a painting and how one deals with a, a brush and a hand, um from the from the sort of motherwell uh Mar- motherwell approaches of the beside the sea paintings to Nair's brushstroke paintings and and also his his films too. So, um, uh, someone like Roxy Payne, sort of in the Walton yeah. in the Walton uh, vein of being the only person um, hoeing that row and and doing so with incredible mastery and um, intensity of vision and craft.
0: So maybe the last thing to ask is: uh, it sounds like there are plans to continue on. Yeah, very much. So. Um, and and is there a, sort of uh, a way of sort of describing that to the 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 rest of us? You know, is a, a yeah, absolutely.
1: It's something Paul had been working on. I mean, as we've really been growing over the last fifteen years or so, working on putting in managerial practices and growing into an organization that's bigger than then one person with a board of directors, with a great management team. He had moved from being Paul Kasman Gallery to Kasman, the building of these spaces as well. And he really put a wonderful team in place. He infused his way of, of looking and thinking to the entire team and really created a very tight and wonderful community that um, he intended to to carry on. He was our, he was our lodestar and always will be. So as much as he, you know, uh, set up everything and taught us how to, uh, how to, how to do business the way he wanted to to do it. Um, he just had these incredible, you know, instincts and gifts that are, um, irreplaceable, but he sort of built this wonderful team and roster that, uh, that can carry on that vision and kind of gave us, uh the lenses that we need to kind of see things how paul would how paul would see them and how he would um you know what his uh what he would think in any given situation we have this brand new space to to move back into so it's going to be like christmas morning when we when we get back in there and get to really start to hang works in the in the spaces and uh get to enjoy the natural light and the architecture that we've built into you know really um Run this machine that Paul created. So, it very much looking like, forward to that. And It
0: sounds like honoring his vision by being able to start a new uh, uh, and carry on for him.
1: That was his express wish.
0: That's fantastic, uh, Nick. I can't thank you enough for uh, spending the time with me. It's yeah, been enlightening pleasure. and uh, a pleasure. And I hope we'll see you in person sometime soon.
1: I'm looking forward to it. It'll be great when we all get together and celebrate.
0: Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com.